Good morning. We had our, our, a bushel full of announcements. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, and we just pray that your Holy Spirit would open your word up and speak to each one of us, Father, that we would hear with ears of faith, Lord, and be able to receive and apply the truth of your word, Lord. Amen. Well, this morning I want to speak about becoming a violent Christian, overcoming passivity. So I want everyone to become violent. Daniel 11.32, those who do wickedly against the covenant he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. The book of Daniel is filled with many prophecies which provide insights about the end times. This prophecy found in Daniel does not paint a picture of God's people being downtrodden. Instead, it paints a picture of people filled with faith and able to rise above the persecution and difficult circumstances of the end times to do great things for God. However, one condition for believers to be able to do great things great exploits, is to have a vibrant relationship with God and a deep understanding of his word. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out exploits. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. God is eagerly looking and searching for those among his people who are willing to be totally yielded to him so he can manifest his power and glory through them, whose heart is loyal to him. So the Spirit of God is looking through the earth to those people of his that are willing to say, I want to be fully loyal to Jesus. I want to be fully surrendered to him. The problem with many of God's people is that they're half-hearted in their relationship with him and their service to him is reflected in their lives. Rather than their lives reflecting the fruit of the Spirit, selfishness and self-centeredness permeates their lives to such an extent that they live mediocre and defeated lives at best. This mediocre living reinforces the mind of many believers not to expect much from God and that being sold out for Christ carries no benefit. If you're in a church year after year and you see the same people struggling with the same things year after year, you may think, well, that's just Christian life. You know what Christian life is? You just keep going to church until one day you die. But that's not the gospel. Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Praying this part of the Lord's Prayer should fill us with expectation and embolden us to believe great things from God. It is a faith-filled and joyful prayer. There are four things we can learn from Matthew 6.10. God's will is already being done fully in heaven. God's will is not yet being done fully on earth. We can agree with God in prayer to see his will done on earth. And fourth, His kingdom is coming, and his perfect will is going to ultimately be manifest on the earth. Hallelujah! That's what God's words, that's what one verse speaks about. Matthew 6, 33. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. God has called us to place his priorities ahead of our own priorities. This is the only way to live an overcoming life. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37.4. When we put God's priorities ahead of our priorities, we will be delighted to find that it will result in all our heart's desires ultimately being fulfilled. And many times we have our priorities first, and we get frustrated with God. God, why aren't you meeting my needs? Why aren't you doing what I need you to do or what I want you to do? But the problem is, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and he is promised then to meet our needs and our heart's desires. God has called us to see his will done on earth as it is done in heaven. In other words, to see his kingdom and his righteousness manifest in this world starting in our lives and then affecting the lives of those around us. The way we see God's kingdom manifest initially is in us. At Jesus' birth, he was declared the king of the Jews. King Jesus has already come, and once he set foot on the earth, his kingdom began and continues to be established. Matthew 2.2 Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. As we engage in the sanctification process, God is setting up his kingdom within us. Jesus was born a king and he died a king. Matthew 27, 37. And they put over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Jesus was resurrected from the dead as proof that he is the king of kings. Revelation 1, 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Jesus will return as the conquering king to establish his eternal kingdom. Revelation 19, 16. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's great, eh? Matthew eleven twelve. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. This one verse provides an essential key to living a fruitful and overcoming life. From the days of John the Baptist until now, something significant happened during the days of John the Baptist. A change had taken place. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, was born into the world. That was the change. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The verb suffers violence can be translated as the kingdom of heaven is forcing itself. In other words, the subject, the kingdom of heaven, is performing the action upon itself and so is pushing itself forward with great power and strength. From the starting point of the days of John the Baptist, even to this very moment, the kingdom of heaven is forcing itself upon men, men's attention. 
Matthew 2, 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. You know, when the three wise men came to Jerusalem, they were sidetracked, right? They, they came to Israel following the star, but instead of going to Bethlehem, they ended up in Jerusalem and they go, where is the king of the Jews? Now, that wasn't a mistake. God wanted them first to go to the capital and to let all the rulers of Israel know the king of kings has been born. Now, Herod wasn't too excited about it, but that's another story. Back to Matthew eleven twelve in the New Century Translation. Since the time John the Baptist came until now, the kingdom of heaven has been going forward in strength, and people have been trying to take it by force. NIV translation. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold on it. God's kingdom is not struggling or being attacked, but it is advancing and pushing itself upon the affairs of mankind and of individuals. People cannot ignore God. They, can, they, ha- they either have to accept Christ or reject him. There's no neutral ground. Either we are for him or against him. But either way, Christ's kingdom is advancing. Whether people say, I receive Christ or they reject Christ, God's kingdom is still advancing. Matthew eleven twelve in the New King James. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. The Williams translation. And from the days of John the Baptist until the present moment, the kingdom of heaven has been continually, continuously taken by storm. And those who take it by storm are seizing it as a precious prize. We must see the precious treasure that God's kingdom is so we'll be willing to violently fight for it. It's worth fighting for. In other words, God's kingdom is worth fighting for. Here's sort of like a little aggregate of of the translation I put in my own words, sort of filling all of, joining it together. From the starting point of the days of John the Baptist, even to this very moment, the kingdom of heaven is forcing itself upon men's attention. The violent and those who use force take it by storm and are seizing it as a precious prize. God is seeking to get our attention, and those who recognize the value of what God is offering us aggressively seek to seize it. When we recognize what God is offering us, we want to be aggressively seeking to take hold of it. Only the violent Christian will be able to receive what God is offering him or her. I like a quote that I heard one preacher say one time. The most violent thing a Christian can do is obey God absolutely. Let me read that again. The most violent thing that a Christian can do is obey God absolutely. Matthew 16, 18. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
You know something about gates? Gates are not an offensive weapon. If someone breaks in your house, you don't say, let's grab the door, pull it off its hinges, and hit the person with the door. A door is not an offensive, it's a defensive. It's like when someone's trying to attack you, you shut the door and you try to hold that door shut. So hell is not saying we're going to attack you with the gates. Hell is saying we're trying to hold back this kingdom that is coming. But the gates of hell cannot hold back God's kingdom. That's what we call force. The revelation of Jesus Christ as the son of the living God is such a violent truth that the very gates of hell cannot stand against the church. One reason the church and Christians do not experience victory more often is because they're passive in their faith and expectations. Sometimes Christians are unable to resist temptation or develop spiritual discipline required to live overcoming lives. This is not because the temptation is so strong, but because their desires are weak and they're far too easily pleased with the status quo. They are too easily pleased with the temporal and mediocre things of life and are not stirred by truly, val- by truly valuable eternal treasures. Their desires are not too strong. They are too weak. They have no desire to be violent. They are willing to live lukewarm and defeated lives instead of being violent Christians, willing to fully be fully obedient to God. They fail to see God do great things in their lives, and they fail to do great exploits for God's kingdom. John the Baptist was such a violent man, the only way he could be silenced was to kill him by cutting his head off. John the Baptist never lifted a fist or took up a sword, but his violence was so intolerable to this world and the devil because he was fully obedient to God and he stood unwavering for the truth. He was too violent. They go, this man is too violent. We've got to kill him. He is too violent. We've got to cut off his head. He is too violent for us. Because he was fully obedient to God. I want to give some examples of the violence of a Christian's action through sacrifice. Actually, the word sacrifice speaks of violence, right? Sacrifice gives the understanding of a victim. It gives the understanding that something must be killed. The idea of a sacrifice is very violent. The concept of a sacrifice is something that is violent. A sacrifice speaks in itself of violence. A sacrifice means something must die. Self-sacrifice is dying to self so we can live for Christ. So I want to give seven types of violent sacrifice. The first one is the sacrifice of obedience. Now some of these sacrifices will really be graphic, so please bear with me. And the first one is terrible. Sacrifice of obedience. 1 Samuel 15.22 
So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Full obedience is the most violent act we can execute against our rebellious nature. Absolute obedience is not obeying as we think or want, that can lead to fanaticism, but as God truly instructs and leads. So when you are fully obedient to God, you are doing violence to your rebellious nature. Number two, sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Being thankful and praising God even in the midst of painful and difficult circumstances is the most violent act against our selfishness and our sense of entitlement. When things aren't working out the way we would want, when we're unhappy and you begin to give thanks to God in that, you are being so violent against your sense of selfish entitlement. Remember Paul and Silas? They were beaten, thrown into a Roman prison, and at midnight they began to worship God. It was so violent that the entire prison shook. It was so violent that doors swung open. It was so violent the chains fell off. It was so violent that the jailer was about to kill himself. And Paul says, don't harm yourself. We're all here. It was so violent that the jailer fell down trembling and said, what must I do to be saved? So if you're going to be thankful... Be careful, it is violent. Number three, sacrifice of blessing our enemies. I, I told you this would be graphic, guys. Romans 12:20. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Blessing our enemies is so violent, it is like pouring hot coals on their heads. This is tough. This is tough. But if you're able to bless those who have wronged you and cursed you, you know what it's like? It is so violent. It's like taking burning coals and pouring in somebody's head. If you saw somebody pouring burning coals on the head, you say, you're a crazy man. You're a crazy man. But when we can find the grace of God to pray and bless those who have wronged us and cursed us and whatever else, you are doing something so violent. They go, stop what you're doing. Don't bless me. This is too violent. Get angry at me. Curse me. But don't bless me. Many have come to Christ. When those who were persecuted blessed their persecutors. Number four, the sacrifice of righteousness. Matthew 5:10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Standing up for righteousness is so violent that people may persecute, mock, and even kill you. Now, Sometimes we see Christians saying, I'm being, I am being persecuted for righteousness' sake. But many times I find Christians are being persecuted because they're obnoxious.
we're self-righteous, we're condemning others, we're telling why they're wrong, we're not living righteous lives ourselves. Number five, sacrifice of forgiveness. For us to forgive, to reach out to those who have hurt us, is an act of violence against our selfish, sinful nature that is so strong that it requires the grace of God for us to forgive. The sacrifice of forgiveness does violence to our sense of vindication, retaliation, and self-righteousness. You know, when you come to a situation where God has allowed people to wrong you, when he's called pe- call, allowed people to, to do injustice to you, it's an opportunity to go to God and say, God, I want to be violent, and I, wa- I choose to forgive them. It's going to require a lot of God's grace because it's a very violent act against our sense of vindication, our sense of retaliation. There are many Christians that are not violent enough for that and spend their whole lives living in the prison of unforgiveness. Number six, the sacrifice of submission. The sacrifice of submission does violence to our independence. I know it's tough, guys. The sacrifice of submission, submission does violence to our independence. Luke twenty-two forty-two. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. This single prayer was so powerful, it took Jesus to the cross. It was so violent that he defeated Satan, sin, and the world in one single action through his death and resurrection. That's how violent it was. When we pray, not my will be done, but your will be done, that is so violent, that is so violent that nothing will be able to stop what God is doing in your life. And number seven, the sacrifice of humility. Oh boy. The sacrifice of humility does violence to our pride. You know, as I say, when I was a brand new Christian, it would take me a half a second to become proud. But now it takes about three or four seconds. (laughs) But it does violence to our pride. So when we humble ourselves, when we humble ourselves, It does violence to our pride so we can overcome it. Passive lives prevent us from pressing through to victory. A passive Christian does not pray or study God's word when he feels or she is dry, right? A violent Christian seeks God diligently even in times when he or she feels spiritually dry. You know, sometimes we will feel spiritually dry, but if you're a violent Christian, say, I will still go and open the word now. I will still spend time in prayer. But a passive Christian, well, I just can't pray. I go, why not? Just has somebody holding a gun to you? Like, what's going on? But they're so passive that the feeling of dryness doesn't enable them to be violent enough to go against that. A passive Christian exhibits outbursts of anger. A violent Christian exhibits self-control. When you see somebody saying, I'm sick of this, I'm tired of the way I'm being treated, I'm tired of the way things are going. You look at him and say, well, there's a very passive Christian. A passive Christian experiences turmoil even at the smallest problem. Just the little tiny things don't work out, and they're in turmoil. 
a violent Christian has a peace that passes all understanding, even in the face of great trials. You know, there are times where I feel overwhelmed, when I feel burdened. And in that time, you know, you have, you have Thanksgiving, and you have praise, and you have worship. Thanksgiving is thanking God for the things he's done for us. Praise is recognizing how wonderful things God does in his power. But worship is another step beyond that. It's recognizing and acknowledging and rejoicing in who he is. And so in times where maybe you can't find something to be thankful for at that moment, or you're overwhelmed, you can worship. And when you worship, you are, doing, you are violent. You are able to say, God, in the midst of my troubles, in the midst of my disappointments, in the midst of all the things that are not the way I want them to be, all the things that are hurting me, I'm going to worship you and just start to spend time worshiping God, not just praising and thanking him, which is wonderful, but going beyond that, worshiping because he's worthy. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of heartbreak, in the midst of disappointment, worshiping him because he is God. And as you worship him, as you worship Christ, as you glorify him, you are doing violence and you are bringing forth a peace that passes all understanding. A passive Christian is discontent with God's provision no matter how much they have or how greatly God has blessed them. When you're passive, you'll always find something that you want more. But a violent Christian is satisfied in his contentment even in the face of lack. A passive Christian is driven by lusts. A violent Christian is motivated by love. A passive Christian is impulsive. A violent Christian is patient and does not react, but responds to the leading of the Spirit. A passive Christian is motivated by self-interest and self-absorbed. A violent Christian is a worshiper of God. A passive Christian can only be thankful and praise God during favorable circumstances. A violent Christian is consistently filled with thanksgiving to God regardless of circumstances. A passive Christian rejoices only when circumstances are favorable a violent Christian always rejoices because they're seeing the goodness of God regardless of the circumstances. So those are some highlights. So I, we're going to look now, we're going to see an example of a violent, a violent faith in the story of Nehemiah. In the face of almost overwhelming opposition, Nehemiah stirred the Jews to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem which had been totally broken down and neglected. So let's start off. Nehemiah 4.1. So it happened when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the walls and he was furious and very indignant and he mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish stones that are burned? Now Tobiah and Ammonite, the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. When we begin to seek God and strengthen our faith and rebuild those areas in our lives where we have failed, the enemy will mock us, and try to discourage us. His goal is to so dishearten us that we will give up. 
In other words, let's say you've been struggling something for, for months or maybe years. You've been struggling for something for years, and it's been overwhelming you. It's been defeating you. But finally you said, God, I want to start to walk and overcome that. The enemy will say, you'll never overcome it. You've always been defeated in this area, and you always will be defeated in this area. And that's what the enemy of the Jews was saying. Nehemiah 4.6. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. In spite of the opposition, the Jews did not give up, but continued to build. They were being violent. They were pushing through. Verse 7 and 8. Now it happened when Sambalot, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. When the enemy of the Jews saw their words of derision and mocking did not deter them, they resorted to threats. In other words, when you begin to move with God, the enemy is going to be super angry. Because it kept you in bondage and defeat all these years. Verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God. And because of them, we set a watch against them day and not night. However, instead of Nehemiah and the Jews becoming disheartened and giving up, they turned to God in prayer and became even more diligent to guard against the enemy's attacks. When you're starting to walk with the Lord... The enemy is going to try to stumble you, and you need to be watchful. You need to be watchful. Verse 10. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, they will neither know or nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near came that they told us ten times, whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. However, Judah began to be overwhelmed by the plans of the enemies, and the people began to falter in their faith. Fear and discouragement began to set in. We must be careful not to listen to the lies of the enemy, but fill our hearts and minds with God's truth. You know, when we're in a bad place, we start to think about all the things that have defeated us. And we're actually listening to the plans of the enemy. We need to say, no, I want to listen to God's word. Verse 13 and 14. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings. And I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, for your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. As the faith of some of the Jews began to weaken, Nehemiah strengthened their faith by calling them to take up their weapons and exhort them to fight for their families and nation. In other words, remember the God 
The God that you serve is awesome and great. Don't look at the lies of the enemy, but remember that the God you serve is awesome and great. And now fight for your families, for your children, for your nation. We need to fight for our families, our friends, and the body of Christ. And we need to fight for those who are unbelievers to find, so they can find salvation. Nehemiah 4.18, every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. Violent faith continues to build God's kingdom even while fighting against the enemy. We can't put down our weapons. We need to be continually watchful and violent. We need to be violent and, and to fight when the enemy seeks to destroy our families and our testimony. We need to arm ourselves with God's word and prayer. So many times we see people who are in ministry who fall into terrible sins and the enemy has destroyed their ministry and their testimony. Verse 23. So neither I... My brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off their clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. Having violent faith is not allowing the enemy to ambush us. We must learn never to take our eyes off of Jesus, but to always be in prayer, in his word, and in fellowship. Rebuilding the wall was a collective effort. In Nehemiah 6, 15... So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul, Elul, Elul in, the 50, uh, 52 day, in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived this work was done by our God. The end result of their violent faith was threefold. The wall of the entire city was completed in 52 days. Isn't that amazing? Second, the enemy was the one who became disheartened and downtrodden. It was no longer the people of God. You know, I like what my spiritual father said one time. He says, you know, probably Satan is the most, most um, discouraged and, and disheartened creature in the universe and frustrated. You know why? Because every time Satan attacks believers who look to Jesus, they actually become stronger through the attack. What a frustrating work. And the third thing is the people of God were encouraged and strengthened for it became very evident that God was with them in their work. Hallelujah. Every time we have a victory, remember that saying, God has been with me and God will continue to be with me. So now I would like to have someone give a testimony of violent faith. Father, I just pray for Janelle as she shares your word, Lord, that you'd give her the anointing of your spirit, Lord, to speak life to all of us, Father. Thank you, Lord. Hi, I'm, uh, I'm Janelle, um, and here's my testimony. <laughs> As I thought about how to share my testimony, I am still amazed at the way God has led me through many different layers and types of healings over these past few months. God healed me physically, 
but this was only the beginning to an amazing work that he has done and is still doing in my heart and in my life. When I was six years old, my dad began a new career in truck driving. He had always been around my whole childhood, and suddenly he was gone for week-long periods at a time. My mom was left to take care of my three older brothers and I. Me being a daddy's girl, his absence made me feel very hurt, lonely, and very sad. I vividly remember deciding at one point to not let it hurt me anymore, and that feeling angry about it was easier than allowing myself to hurt. I think that this experience as a child may have caused a root of anger and bitterness to germinate and grow within me over the years. From that moment on, any time I experienced hurt, loss, sadness, confusion, or loneliness, I would let anger mask the hurt. Over the years, that anger root was allowed to survive and flourish in my life. I even thought that being angry was making me a stronger person. Perhaps being tall and having poor posture and being a sport fanatic as a teenager, I also began to have chronic back pain. It has intensified over these past 10 to 15 years. The most pain has always been in my upper spine and I lived with this constant pain. I lived with this constant pain as well as my anger and did not even realize how it was consuming me. The pain steadily got worse and this past Mother's Day I had an MRI taken of my upper spine and I was waiting for the results. In the meantime, my doctor had prescribed strong pain medication which I was relying on just to function each day. I work part-time at Christian Horizons as a developmental service worker. On June 1st of this year, I was at work supporting a client. He was a larger man and we were just walking in a parking lot and suddenly he tripped. When he tripped, I broke his fall. I was supporting all of his weight and somehow not falling down myself. Um, immediately, I thought, oh no, that is it, my back is broken. I had intense muscle pain that surrounded my whole spine and I was unable to move my neck. I went to the hospital, had x-rays taken and nothing appeared broken. The ER doctor told me that the MRI that had been taken two weeks earlier only showed normal de degeneration and some arthritis. So I was given some more anti-inflammatory anti <laughs> anti medication and pain relief. Okay, over the next week and a half, while I was not working, the muscle stiffness and spinal pain got worse. On June 10th, I began to experience other symptoms. I felt nausea, sensitivity to light, movement, and noise. My doctor told me I was experiencing symptoms of whiplash-induced concussion. This really scared me because I know how long concussions can take to heal. I also became very anxious and worried because my husband and I had big summer plans for the Sunday school program here at our church. We planned on using a vacation Bible school curriculum called Shipwrecked, and we were going to spread it over the entire summer Sundays. Delays were putting everything into jeopardy. The next week was horrible. All the blinds in our home had to be shut. I wore sunglasses all the time. Everyone in our house had a whisper. I couldn't talk to my kids or even be around them. Their movements made me nauseous. 
Paul had to do everything in our home, and I just cycled from the bed to the couch to my chair. I was consuming heavy-duty muscle relaxants, and I was popping them like candy, just trying to ease the pain. I felt as though I were fading and slowly slipping away. I felt as though I were dying. It was terrifying. Paul and my three children were laying hands on me, praying for me every day. Again, I would have, I would have moments of relief, and then the symptoms would always come back. I believe God was teaching me and us as a family to draw near to him at every moment. Pastor Howard would call to check in each day or two and he would pray for healing. He would always ask if I, would feel, if I felt anything and if there was any improvements. Sometimes there was and I had relief and I was thankful and I knew God was with me, but all the symptoms would always come back with a vengeance. Somehow, strangely enough, I was not getting angry. I was just allowing the awful pain to hurt. I believe God was teaching me just to abide with him. So the pain and the symptoms kept intensifying. I was immobilized, unable to do anything. On Sunday evening, June 17, Paul wrote an email to all the Sunday school teachers who were planning on helping me with the decorations for shipwrecked. In the email, he explained all my symptoms and that I was unable to do anything. He was trying to arrange to have people help, but he didn't really have all the ideas figured out himself and I couldn't communicate them to him. Paul was also very busy with, at that time, so we were both getting really tired out. It was a stressful time, but we were not overwhelmed and I wasn't angry. Monday, June 18, I woke up crying and likely crying in sleep due to the, to the intense pain, confusion, and loss of proper functions. I somehow made it downstairs and again took some more painkillers and I asked Paul to stay home with me. I was unable to be left alone. My children left for school, seeing their usually fully operational mom curled up in a ball, wearing sunglasses, crying and shaking. Paul made arrangements to have someone cover his class so he could stay home with me that day. Paul was amazing that whole month. So <laughs> uh, he had been caring for our children, making all the meals, packing lunches for our kids and himself, writing report cards, planning for all his year in activities for his grade three class, preparing for shipwrecked and Sunday school, and yet somehow we were managing step by step at a time. Well, that morning, we were at a breaking point. There was no end in sight, and my doctor said it was going to be a long recovery, even though my symptoms had definitely gotten worse since he said that. Just after lunch, I was going to have another nap. Paul was wiped out too, so he came up to have a nap. Unfortunately, I couldn't sleep any longer since I was sleeping almost all day, every day, the previous week. I was restless. Paul said, look, if you aren't miraculously healed by, say, Friday, we are calling off shipwrecked, which I did not want to do. I was extremely excited about bringing it to our church. He was going to pray again for me, but said, hey, you have ha had everyone praying for you. You need to pray this time. 
Well, I had been praying in my heart quietly, and when people were praying for me, I was in full agreement with their prayers, but I knew he was right. So I thought in my head, all right, God, here we go. I prayed with a whole new level of boldness. I declared who I was, precious in God's eyes. Even though I didn't fully believe it in my heart, I declared God loved me and that he wanted me healed. I prayed 1 Peter 2, 24. By his wounds, I have been healed. I also reminded him, if he may be forgotten, if we wanted the summer program to happen this summer, he needed to heal me quickly. <laughs> so after praying, Paul asked how I was. I told him I was feeling better. He said, pray again. So I did. I prayed for him another minute. Immediately, all my senses normalized. I could open my eyes without squinting. I could move my neck without pain. All the stiffness was gone. <laughs> Paul and I were over-the-top excited. Paul said, okay, you need to do something big. Go for a walk and go get our mail, which was a little way down our street. Doesn't seem big, but it was big. Um, it was 1.30 on a sunny June day, and previously I had, un been I had been unable to stand up for more than 30 seconds at a time while wearing my glasses. So I went without sunglasses, and I got our mail. I came back, no problem, smiling, even carrying a large parcel with the rest of our mail. When our kids came home, Paul came up with a big smile saying, guess what, guys? And they all knew immediately that their mommy was better. Elena, my youngest, was literally jumping up and down in, in excitement. It was amazing and so beautiful to see their joy. It was such a gift for them to see how awesome God is and how he can heal us in our most lowest and trying points. That night, we wanted to celebrate and do something fun as a family. We decided to go swimming at the town pool, and I was able to swim too. It was fantastic. We had not done anything fun together for quite a few weeks. That night, Paul again sent out another email to the Sunday school teachers saying Janelle's been miraculously healed. The next day, we started receiving texts, phone calls, and emails from people who expressed their praise and glory to God for what he had done. Kurt Hawkins, who works with us in Sunday school, asked what time I had been healed. Paul told him it was around 1.15, 1.30. It turns out that he had come back to his cabinet-making shop after lunch on that Monday and began praying for people. One of those people on his list was me and he prayed that God would heal me within the hour. We figure it could have even been that exact minute. As well, my sister-in-law, who lives in Aurelia, had taken a personal day off from work. Not even really knowing how bad I was, she felt God put it on her heart to pray for me. You never know what the Holy Spirit's prompting to pray might accomplish. He leads us to pray so that his will can be in heaven can be accomplished here on earth. I'm learning never to ignore these prompts whenever they happen. So many amazing things were coming out of my healing. I am convinced that the purpose of my physical healing was multifaceted. The day after I was healed, I was just driving in my van, which I wasn't able to do the previous week. I was just praying and thanking God out loud, looking 
crazy, I'm sure. Uh, I just wanted to express my love and gratitude to God. Well, I've always wanted to pray in tongues, and I just told God I would love to pray in tongues, and instantly I was praying in tongues and driving the van in control at the same time. <laughs> that same night at 2.14 a.m., I was awoken by pain in my upper spine once again. Fear and doubt began to grip me. I began praying in tongues. Did I get water? Sorry about that. Okay, so fear and doubt began to grip me and my pain, uh, it, it had all come back. I began praying in tongues, knowing that God had healed me and the pain was already gone. Well, it was not going away, so at 4 a.m., I woke up Paul, who was already exhausted, but he got up and he prayed with me at, at four in the morning. Uh, God revealed to me as we prayed that I still had a root of anger in my heart. I began confessing my anger and repenting of the hurt and destruction it has caused in my life. God also laid on me, on my heart, specific people that I needed to confess to and ask forgiveness from. While praying, the pain fully left once again. While the next two weeks were amazing, I spent every single day creating shipwrecks with many incredibly talented, crafted people from our church. Many are here this morning. So thank you to each one of you. I've already thanked a million times, but thank you again. You were all amazing. The children in the Sunday school absolutely loved it, and it has been an amazing summer. The whole time we were working on it, I was so amazed because Shipwrecked was all about how Jesus rescues us, and Jesus truly rescued me. While the story continues, God is still revealing himself to me more and more. I have struggled with anxiety and feelings of inadequacy my whole life. Even the fact that I am standing here sharing this with all of you is simply a miracle. In the past, I would hardly acknowledge a request to stand up and share. I'm sure all my friends and family would attest to this. God is so good and so incredibly faithful. God bless. I want you to know one thing, that one thing she said wasn't totally accurate. She's not afraid of speaking publicly. She's absolutely terrified. Seriously, terrified. She goes, my voice goes funny. I can't control myself. And I said, so it, it's true. It's true. It's like she was terrified beyond belief. But she's a violent Christian. There's only one thing I don't like about her testimony. He makes Paul sound really good compared to me. <laughs> well, let's just pray. Father, we thank you for Paul and Janelle and their family. We thank you for this healing, Father. We thank you for the way you, you orchestrated every component, not only to heal her body, but to set her free, to fill her with your spirit, Lord. 
We're so thankful, Father. We're so thankful, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this testimony that encourages all of us to believe you even when we don't see the results right away, even when we don't see what you're doing right away, but to trust you that we're working through that process and you have a glorious victory, a glorious purpose, that we will do great exploits. And I pray for Paul and Janelle and their children that they will do great exploits for the kingdom of God. Amen. So now you know why I spoke about violent faith. My desire is that each church would be able to declare, our pastor and our church are violent. I want you to say, we go to a church, it's violent. The pastor's violent. The people are violent. It is a violent church. You know, sometimes when I wake up, I feel sad. I feel heavy. I feel burdened, and I realize I'm being passive. And so I get up, and I begin to read the word, and I begin to worship God, and I become violent, and that all melts away. Christians are often passive, so the world sees Christians who are filled with hostility and contention. The world sees passive Christians who are acting very much like non-believers. So next time you see a believer and they're angry and they're frustrated and they're complaining, you say, well, you need to be violent. <laughs> Let us be violent for Jesus and armed with faith, hope, and love. I'd like you to all stand. And we're going to worship God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you so much, Father. We thank you so much. And I thank you when you allow difficulties into our lives, when you allow those things to happen so we can learn to be violent Christians, where we can stand up against opposition, where we can stand up against discouragement, where we can stand up against negative circumstances, and we can declare you're good and faithful. Oh, God, teach us to be people that are no longer downtrodden by circumstances and by disappointments, but we will be violent and look to Jesus alone. Declare your goodness. I pray, Father, for anyone here who is discouraged this evening or this morning, Father, your spirit would move. I pray, Father, stir us, Father, to believe you for great things, Father, to believe you that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, to believe you that your will will be done in our lives. Father, yes, Lord. And, Father, I pray for anyone here who has never found Christ, Lord, that your spirit would touch them even now, Lord. Oh, God, you'd stir them, Father, with a desire to respond to find Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Hallelujah. As we're going to come to worship right now, if there's anyone who's never received Christ, we'll have our prayer team coming up. You can come forward, and they will explain to you and be able to pray with you to receive the Lord right now. If there are people who are discouraged, we're here to pray for you. If you're encouraged, be violent and go up, and you can pray with them too and declare the good things God has done. Hallelujah. Let's be violent for Jesus. Jesus.